You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement. Or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. Helping people discover, protect, and share financial independence. This is the Get Ready for the Future show. Welcome aboard for another edition. My name is Scott Inman and Janet Walker alongside today in the other co-host chair welcome back to you i am very glad to be back yes we are talking questions and answers again today we've got four of them lined up we're going to talk about everything from insurance to gold to real estate so we've got quite a show yeah yeah runs the gambit yep so we're going to get right in with the charlie from conway that's our first question today charlie writes i'm married with two children Currently, my wife, 32, and I, 36, are maxing out our 401k contributions. What should our next move be? Well, first of all, congratulations to you, Charlie. That's not easy to do, especially yeah. in your 30s. So you are definitely, uh, you've created some margin in your life. You've got some positive cash flow, and you are serious about saving. So you're in a, a great spot to start really ordering the sequence of your contributions. So they said, Janet, that they're maxing out their 401k contributions. So they're putting a lot in because the 401k match for people in their 30s is $22,500 annually. So that's a lot of money going into retirement accounts. But is that kind of the right order of sequence? Let's kind of analyze that and the reasons why. So first of all, I'll echo your congratulations to mm -hmm. them, especially with two kids, to be able to max out those contributions is, is a big deal. So back to your question, Scott, about the sequence of the prioritization of your dollars. You can only put $1 in one place. And so we want to be sure that we're doing things in the right sequence. So uh, while you're maxing out your 401k contributions, we would ask if uh, if you are also able to do Roth or traditional IRA contributions because you want to, step one, max out the match that you're getting in your 401k and then assuming there's additional money available, and in this case we know there is because you're maxing out what you can contribute fully. So max out the match, then go to the Roth or traditional IRA, and I'm going to say with your ages being in the 30s, that if your income allows for you to do Roth IRA contributions, then you for sure need to go that direction, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. Then after you've done that, if there is then still money that you have available to contribute, then at that point you want to go back to the 401k. So to recap on that, your first dollars are going to be to match out the max, max out the match. I said that backwards. Mm -hmm. That's hard to say. Yeah. Max out the match in your 401k, step one. And then step two, you're going to go to a Roth or traditional IRA. Again, based on your ages, the Roth would be our preference if your income allows for it. And then step three, you're going to go back to the 401k to max out the full amount of contributions that you're allowed to make. Let's talk a little bit about the Roth 401k, because that's yeah. a relatively new option being offered uh, in employer plans. And let me back that up. Maybe not relatively new, more widespread now. Yes. I, I was, it was rare we would see a Roth 401k five, six, seven years ago. Right. But it is being offered more frequently now by employers. And we do get that question a lot in a client meeting room when someone is maybe maxing out their 401k. How should I allocate these dollars? And 
And it really depends, I think, a lot on your season of life. It, it does. Um, and it also depends on your perspective about taxes. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that, and this is not 100% across the board, but most CPAs, when you talk to them, they are focused on this year's taxes, not the lifespan of how much you are going to pay throughout your life on taxes. And we're really more focused because it's a picture of financial independence. It's it's the holistic financial independence picture which is your lifetime of how much you're going to spend in taxes. That is a big factor. And so we want to look at, over your lifetime, spending less in taxes. So the difference between, and and I'll get into the 401k aspect of it in just a moment, but let's just talk about outside of the 401k, the traditional versus the Roth IRA. If somebody makes, let's say, $50,000, and we're just going to use nice even numbers on this, if they make $50,000 and they contribute $5,000 to a traditional IRA, then they're taxed on $45,000 of income because they get to take that off the top, okay? So they're taxed on $45,000 instead of $50,000. So they get a tax deduction at the beginning, but in retirement, when they withdraw that money, they're going to be taxed on the full balance that's in there, the the principal, the growth, all of that will then be taxable because the beginning dollars were not taxed, okay? So with a Roth, we kind of want to flip that. If somebody makes $50,000 and they contribute $5,000 to a Roth IRA, then they're not going to get that deduction now. But when the, So they're going to pay taxes still on $50,000 in income. But then when they get to retirement and they withdraw that money, all of that money, including the growth, is tax-free, which means, let this soak in for a moment, what you put in there, you've already paid taxes on it at the time, but when you take it out, that growth that's never had any taxable impact on it, and it doesn't get that. So that's a big deal for you. And when you think about being in your 30s, you have a long time as you're approaching retirement for that money to grow. So the power of that compound interest over time is huge. Now, Scott, let's circle back to the the 401k aspect. As you said, Roth 401ks, or that option within a 401k has become more and more common. And a lot of people will ask, they get kind of confused about, well, but my employer doesn't put in money that way, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's true. Your employer is never going to put their match in as Roth money because they're looking for the tax benefit for the company at this point. But you are allowed, if your plan has it available to you, you are allowed to put your dollars in as Roth 401k dollars. So when you get to the point of retirement, if you transition this over, it's very common for us to see 401k money actually go to two different accounts. And one will go to a traditional IRA and one will go to a Roth IRA to separate the company contributions and your contributions. But if you have a five-year or more, that's a rule of thumb, you know, it, not, not a rule of dumb as we joke about sometimes, but a general rule of thumb um, that we want to look at how many years do you have. And if it's beyond five years, it's at least worth considering the Roth option if it's beyond 10 years, it's a no-brainer to go the Roth option. Yeah, and you know, generally speaking, people in their 30s are in a little bit lower tax bracket than they True. will be in their later uh, work life in their 50s. Now, it mm-hmm. may not be the case with Charlie and his wife, because if they're maxing out their 401ks, that means they're putting $45,000 yeah. in, so they're getting a great tax break and they're likely high earners, but they have that time. So back to Janet's point, the compounding time Mm -hmm. of tax-free growth and then tax-free income in retirement can make all the difference too. Because when you think about many of your uh, assets being taxed, much of your retirement income being taxed, if you can have a significant amount of tax-free income in retirement, 
your net number, your spendable number, your retirement, your your yeah. days of financial independence are going to be greater. A uh, couple of uh, notes, too, just to, for clarification, too, I think when you talk about the Roth 401k and then the Roth IRA, they are two distinctly different types mm-hmm. of accounts. So they have different contribution limits. So you can actually put up to $22,500 into a 401k. And again, make sure you're putting enough in to get the employer match if you have to contribute in pre-tax dollars to get that. But after that, you can go to the Roth 401k up to the $22,500 limit. And if you're 50 or over, and that is defined as turning 50 this year. So if you are turning 50 in 2023 uh, or older, you can put an additional $7,500 into that 401k, which gets you to $30,000. Those those limits have increased significantly mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. And then the IRA is separate. Whether it's traditional or a Roth IRA, the annual limit is $6,500 with an additional $1,000 catch-up if you're 50 or over. So that would be $7,500 that you could put into an IRA. So that is aggregate, right? If you if you put $1,000 in a Roth, then you can only put 5500 more into a traditional IRA. But it is distinctly different than the 401k, right. regardless of if it has the Roth name on it. So it, we've focused really on retirement questions because that's kind of yeah. how Charlie framed this in talking about maxing out their 401k contributions. But we also want to talk about what else matters to you between now and the time of retirement? What are some other maybe intermediate goals that might be important to focus on? Um, I don't know what your children's plans might be, and, I, and I'm certain that they're quite young since uh, the, the couple is ages 32 and 36. So we don't know what the future holds for the kids. But if you want to put back money for their future, whether that's for college or just, I, I have jokingly just called it kid money because who knows what our kids are going to do when they grow up, but they're going to need some assistance to get out and moving on their own. So you might want to make that part of your goals. Uh, I think it's also important for you to consider whether you want to retire early. And, and I don't mean early in your 30s, but before maybe 59 and a half, before Social Security could kick in in your 60s. Do you want to consider that? Because since you are starting as early as you as you have, that is probably a possibility in your situation. A- another consideration is maybe even paying down um, things like your mortgage or if you have any other consumer debt to pay those things down to put yourself in a more stable position moving forward. And then, Scott, you want to talk a little bit about life insurance for this young couple? Yeah, married with two children especially, and obviously uh, quite a bit of income coming into the household too. You need to be able to protect that income. So what happens if one spouse does not come home one day and that income has to be replaced? How are you going to provide uh, a certain level of lifestyle for the surviving spouse and for the children and still provide for all of those needs, the retirement, the, the uh, higher education, if that's a, a priority for you. Life insurance certainly needs to be in place. I hope Charlie um, and his wife have some. You know, I've shared this story before, but my first wife, Nicole, um, passed away from brain cancer in 2020. And I'll, I'll tell you, if I was not a believer in life insurance prior mm-hmm. to that, I certainly am now. And we had actually, she had gone back to work. So she was a stay-at-home mom for the most part. She worked part-time a little bit as a soccer coach, but she was a stay-at-home mom and I was the breadwinner. And we had a little bit of coverage on her, but not much. But when she decided to re-enter the workforce uh, as a teacher, 
we decided to get a policy for her and we took out a term policy and we took that policy out and she was underwritten for it and it went into force a mere month and a half before she had a seizure and we found out that she had brain cancer. So you yeah. talk about God's timing on that, first of all, but yeah. I found out the importance uh, in a very personal way of term life insurance. And I would tell you that I, I even erred on the front end of that because even when Nicole was not working, there was a need for her to possibly have life insurance as well. Yeah, I, I refer to to that stage of life when there there is many times a stay-at-home parent. Often, uh, often it is the wife in my household. Ironically, it's the husband. I know it's not traditional, but for health reasons, that's what has, has worked out for us. But um, I call that stage of life, uh, the life insurance, it's, it's Mary Poppins money. Because mm-hmm. if, if your spouse who has been staying home with the children, and I say staying home loosely because he takes them to all of the doctor's appointments. Before they could drive, he was taking them to and from school, all of those things. So if something happened to him, I would have to hire Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. That, that's the deal. And so even somebody who is not bringing income into the home they are providing, dare I say, a service to the family that you would have to pay somebody else to do if you're going to maintain your other, you know, priorities in life, like being at work when you're at work and not having to leave to go pick up the kids and that type of thing. So there's a lot to consider in the life insurance question. And with with this couple being in their 30s, um, when we talk about discover, protect and share financial independence, the life insurance aspect, this is protecting financial independence because it is definitely a threat if something were to happen to one of you. Thank you, Charlie, for the question. If you have questions, you can call or text them to us at this number, 501-381-5228. Call and leave a voicemail with your question, or you can text it to that number and hear your question answered on the air. You can also send an email to show at Get Ready for the Future. And our next question, Janet, is a little bit more about life insurance. This is from Lloyd in Bentonville. I'm 60 and I have a paid up universal life insurance policy. Should I keep it or what do I do? Thank you, Lloyd, for the question. Standalone, this is going to be difficult to explore, but we'll go at it from an education perspective, Janet. So we probably need to help uh, the listeners understand the difference in the types of life insurance. Lloyd says he has a paid up universal life insurance policy one of many types that are out there. So let's talk about term versus whole life versus universal life. Um, when we were just talking with our, our previous question with Charlie from Conway, and this couple is, is in their 30s, uh, for them, what we would definitely look at is a term life insurance policy because it is the least expensive way to get the most coverage in place. Hands down, no questions about it. But what Lloyd from Bentonville already has in place is a paid-up universal life insurance policy. What that means is that he has paid into this for many years now, and it has gotten to the point where there's a certain amount of cash value built up in the policy, and he doesn't have to continue paying premiums anymore if he doesn't want to do that, if he doesn't want to add to this. So uh, many times what we will look at, especially with him being age 60, is what is the insurance need at this point? When he first got it, it was probably, as we talked about with this younger couple, it was probably to replace income if something were to happen to him. At this point, we don't know, Lloyd, uh, I I don't know if he's self-insured or not. 
Um, but I'm going to make an assumption that he's he's probably pretty close to it because he's close to retirement. And so if nobody is dependent upon that income or if his assets, meaning like 401k, that type of thing, could replace his income for the time that he would have continued to work, then he may not need insurance for the traditional reasons anymore. And so the greatest now, the greatest threat to his financial independence is no longer passing away but it is a long-term care event. Mm-hmm. And so, Scott, one of the things we'll actually look at is is if that's the case, if that's where we are in terms of insurance needs now, then we can take the cash value from this policy and do what's called a 1035 exchange. It's a non-taxable event and take it from that policy and go to a, a policy that will then cover long-term care needs. Yeah. So we've transitioned the focus from this used to be the reason I had life insurance. Now my insurance need has shifted, but we can utilize these same dollars toward solving for the insurance needs. Yeah, that is a great opportunity if you do have a uh, paid up life insurance policy that has, or even if it's not paid up, but if it has some cash value, you have an opportunity to exchange that and pay for or at least pay down on the front end a long-term care policy. And I I agree with that wholeheartedly. Your need does change Mm -hmm. when you're in this uh, season of life, when you're around 60 years old. And that is the critical time to take a look at it because when it it comes to Janet being approved or underwritten for a long-term care policy, we believe the sweet spot is really between 55 and 60. Now, there are certainly um, extenuating circumstances that might cause you to look at that earlier. Uh, And if you have to look at it later, that's fine, too. But the cost effectiveness really is in that time frame between age 55 and 60. I I would say it's cost effectiveness. And it's also uh, for me, it's just personal experience with my clients. I I know um, we've got a lot of respect for Dave Ramsey, uh, but there's a lot of things that he has said over the years and just not altered as things have changed. Uh, And one of them is he still says on your 60th birthday, go get long term care. Well, for a long time, statistically, that was a good answer. But we're seeing things occur like the beginning of a need for long-term care is sometimes hitting earlier. Now, um, Scott, I will I will never forget, and this had a tremendous impact on my career, I will never forget years ago walking into a client meeting, and this, this gentleman had been my client for a few years at this point, and I walked in and I noticed he was talking kind of funny. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he's had a stroke. Like, what in the world? He was 58. And we start talking, and I was asking him what was going on and everything, and he had Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. And we don't think about things like that happening in our 50s, um, but it it does. It can. And so um, based on that experience personally and some others among our our, uh, group of clients here at GenWealth, um, we determined to move that forward to 55. And as you said, Scott, it, it, it's not harmful to do it before then. And if you're older than that and going, man, I've missed it, it's still important to have that conversation. We're just looking at, ideally, we really want to start that conversation at 55. Yeah, so for Lloyd, who is 60 and has that paid up universal life insurance policy, maybe it makes sense to take a look at what your need is and is it uh, with through the planning process, do you discover that you have a need for long-term care coverage or are you going to have enough assets to self-insure? Do you have a desire to leave that uh, cash value as a legacy or that death benefit, I should say, as a legacy? Because that is a tax-free 
passing on of money to the next generation and there aren't too many of those mm-hmm. so if that would be really the, about the only real reason to keep it i think for for lloyd is if he does have a desire to give that to the next generation and then to speak real quickly to the younger generation uh, if you are younger than lloyd and you're just looking for death benefit coverage just an idea of the difference in cost between a whole life insurance uh, pre- a premium or a universal life insurance premium or a term premium. Here are some averages, uh, and this is from Forbes Advisor. So take a female, age 40, a $250,000 death benefit. The average whole life insurance cost per month is $275. Obviously, some of that's used to build up cash value, but a lot to pay the policy. And then the universal life insurance policy cost per month, the average is $140. And I can tell you, back to my personal story Mm -hmm. uh, about Nicole, she was about 40 years old and we got her a $250,000 20-year term policy. And she was very healthy, we thought at the time, right? Uh, She she was certainly very healthy. I mean, she was very physically active. There was no way to know that there was anything going on. Anybody would have said she was healthy at the time. And her cost per month was $18. So So that shows you the difference. So let's go through this again. For the same amount of coverage and right at the same age, whole life was $275 a month. Mm -hmm. Universal life was $140 a month. And term insurance was $18 a month. Mm -hmm. Guys, this is how you build financial independence. When you understand things like this, like you don't have to spend over $200 a month to get your insurance needs covered. You protect your family as far as financial independence is concerned by getting that insurance in place, but it doesn't have to be costly. And then you're able to take what you're saving compared to what you would have spent otherwise and use it to further your financial goals. We have an insurance specialist on our team at Gen Wealth. His name is Tony Conterno, and he sits down with all of our clients to determine their need, discover their need for insurance and how it fits into their overall plan for true financial independence. If you'd like to get started in that process, you can call us toll-free, 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. And we're taking your questions on the Get Ready for the Future show today. We've got one from Danielle in Little Rock. Danielle writes, gold is getting a lot of airtime, isn't it always? <laughs> what are the pitfalls of investing in something like that? Oh, Danielle, thank you very much. And certainly in times of volatility, which really is all the time. You know, I was talking with a client the other day, in fact, in there, we were talking about the uncertainty yeah. around the economy. I'm like, but really, there's always uncertainty yeah. around the economy and there's always market volatility and so there's always going to be ads for gold buy gold so janet let's let's get in there and people say on those ads a lot of times that gold has never gone to zero and that's true but neither has the market right yeah (laughs) i get tickled about that one and we've actually got a graphic Mm -hmm. on this to show from uh, February of 1915 all the way through May of 2023. And I know some of you are listening on the radio and going, where in the world do I find a graphic? What is that all about? So you can catch up with us on Facebook or on YouTube. Uh, check out the Get Ready for the Future show and you'll be able to see this. And what you will see here is that since February of 1915 to May of 2023, that gold has increased as a as a percentage return 10,000%. But the Dow Jones Industrial Average has increased 60,000%. Mm. So the whole deal of gold has never gone to zero, 
okay, but Ascot said, neither has the market. So why is that relevant? Yeah, and let me and let me take a moment to point out on that graphic as you take a look at it on the live stream version of the show that that doesn't look like a real big gap starts to develop until after the 1950s, but I scrolled over it when we were preparing this. Yeah. It's still a big gap. It, it is it, when, when you, you think, zoom in on it. Yeah. yeah. It's like a thousand percent difference even in the early years. Yeah. But you can see how big the gap there uh, becomes over time. And I, and I think that the, you know, the whole thing with gold is I, I don't know that people always think, hey, it's a better investment than the stock market. But I think a lot of times they flock to it when they're fearful of yeah. the stock market, right? Gold is kind of a, a, an instrument that is bought on fear. I think it's even sold on fear. And there's this concept that if we really get in bad shape, and we talk about market and e economic uncertainty, mm -hmm. if really things start to fall apart for a short period of time, a long period of time, if I have gold, it's safer or it, it, it is, it's going to save me in a financial crisis. And that's just not yeah. really true either. It, it, here's what I would say. We don't make financial decisions based on feeling. We make them based on fact. And uh, Scott, I remember a while back, quite a while back now, I had a gentleman say to me, when the economy collapses, I want to have gold. And it wasn't if. It was when, like it was a definitive deal, it's going to happen, and when it does, I want to have gold. And I said, what would you do with the gold? And of course, he was going to get food and water and things like that. And I said, okay, let's do a history check here. If you go all the way back to the Roman Empire, there is not one time of economic collapse when you can find that people actually used gold. Let me use Hurricane Katrina as a, a smaller scale example. It was a big deal to those who were there, but what I mean by smaller scale is it was not nationwide an economic collapse. But if you were in New Orleans, it was an economic collapse. You couldn't go to work and earn money. You couldn't get money from the ATM. The banks were closed. Everything was closed. And so, Scott, if you and I had been walking the streets of New Orleans, you know, through through water that was, you know, up to my waist at that point or, or deeper at times if we were going through there and i had a bottle of water and you had gold mm -hmm. guess what buddy mm -hmm. we're not trading you're just going to be thirsty yeah. because i can't eat your gold i can't drink your gold but if i had a bottle of water and you had a can of soup we could probably make a deal mm -hmm. right it goes back, when there's an economic collapse to that extent, it goes back to bartering. It is as natural as just the beginnings of mankind that we are going to go to, we have to eat and we have to drink in order to survive. You cannot eat gold, you cannot drink gold, period. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter, several years ago, she just turned 17, I don't remember exactly how old she was when this happened, maybe 10 or so, but... It was one of those periods in time where there were lots of gold commercials, you know, buy gold, buy gold, everything's going, you know, we're in a handbasket, and so you need to buy gold because when the economy collapses, you're going to need gold. And my 10-ish or so daughter said, Mama, if gold is such a good thing and you need to have as much of it as you can, why is he selling his? <laughs> and I thought, you know, from the mouths of babes, because yeah. it really is a very valid question. It, there is a limited supply of gold. It's not like, okay, you're investing in these companies that can continue to grow and grow and grow. You're investing in, in gold. And it, it, is a, it is an asset that is, it, that is limited in supply. 
So if somebody is selling you theirs, you have to wonder why. You know, if you want, if, you know, for Danielle or anybody else listening, if you want a little bit of gold, that's fine. Buy some yeah. gold. We just want you to know what you're getting into here in terms of, you know, understanding it fully. And because people think of it as maybe not volatile, as maybe a hedge when the market's down. We've got one more graphic. You know, we showed oh, yeah. you that graphic from really all time, more or less, from February of 1950, I'm sorry, 1915 to 2023. Let's look at just the last a decade or so. This is gold prices versus the stock market since June of 2012 through May of this year. And you see the gold line is gold and the blue line is uh, the S&P, or I'm sorry, it's the Dow Jones industrial mm-hmm. average. And you can see just, I mean, don't even pay attention to how much the market has outperformed gold. Just look at the gold line and see how it bounces. It is incredibly volatile. It looks very similar to what the Dow Jones has done in terms of the ups and downs. And then the other thing, too, is if you pick out a, a time, a point in time where they're going the same direction, it's not hard to do, right? There are times when mm-hmm. gold is going up, when the market is going down, and vice versa. But there are also times, I look at 2022 right there, just yeah. towards the tail end of those graphics, where both gold and the Dow Jones were going down at the same time. So it's not, a, it's not going to save you in terms of a hedge against volatility. I, I think you hit on one of the keywords there. It's not going to save you. Gold is not a guaranteed safety net. Mm-hmm. And it is probably way more volatile than what the average consumer thinks it is. We know it is volatile, but what the average consumer thinks is probably that it is not that volatile. But again, just be sure that you're making your financial decisions based on fact, not on emotion. We've got about three and a half minutes left, so we don't want to shortchange Doug, but we're going to try to get the Doug's question here from Bryant. He writes, I'm invested in REITs and I'm concerned about commercial real estate. What do I need to know and do I need to make any money moves right now? Doug thanks uh, REITs standing for Real Estate Investment Trust. He says he cons- he's concerned about commercial real estate, and I'm not sure exactly. He doesn't tell us there, Janet, on what sure. types of commercial real estate he's concerned about but generally the concern right now is over retail because Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. all of the e-commerce because of office space because everybody went and worked from home during covid we do know we we work in an office building right here where it's pretty darn full Uh, people are coming back to the office so that's not across the board true but you do have to be careful i think uh in in looking at real estate investment trusts first of all they're considered alternative investment. So you you do have to know that it's a different asset class, but we as an asset class do love real estate. Well, I I think you bring up a very valid point about the question of of what is meant here by commercial Mm -hmm. real estate, and I wouldn't lump it all into that one category. So let me use as an example, and I'm not saying that this is good or bad, just as a teaching moment of a comparison, that uh, Amazon, as an example, they don't own their distribution centers. And so you think about, since COVID especially, you think about how much business Amazon has done and this trend of more and more people are just buying things online. Well, they have to have these distribution centers. And because they want the money for those buildings to be in their business rather than in bricks and mortar, they rent those facilities. Well, I don't think Amazon has given up the distribution centers anytime soon. And so the rent on those businesses is continuing to come in for the people who are invested in those REITs that hold that type of investment. But there are some others that, like you said, Scott, if it's something that is maybe they own office buildings in places where people are still continuing to work from home a significant amount, 
So we do have to pay attention to what is mm-hmm. inside any individual real estate investment trust and what their trend is and how they invest. But you certainly don't want to lump them all together. And I think it's important too, Scott, if you want to talk a little bit yeah. about non-traded versus traded REITs. Yeah, because I think to really gain access to the real part of real real estate, yeah. if you will, being in a traded real estate investment trust can be difficult to do that because you're going to get dragged down and mm-hmm. buoyed up by the overall trading that goes on with the market. But a non-traded real estate investment trust it can be accessed through a financial advisor, and you do have to meet certain qualifications to be eligible to do that. But if you can get into those, the uh, the value of the, the price per share of the real estate investment trust is based on the appraised value of the underlying holdings that that REIT has. And it is priced once a month in many cases. So it doesn't matter what gets done on a trading day or what happens in any given uh, trading day in the market. The real estate tends to be, no, not guaranteed, tends to be lower have lower volatility because it's not going to bounce every day that emotions take over with the latest economic data that comes out like the market does. So when you think about that, uh, Doug, I would definitely say it's worth looking into. Wouldn't do it without the help and guidance of a financial advisor, but it also adds diversification. I think that's the one thing we could end with here is you have stocks as an asset class, you have fixed income as an asset class, Real estate just gives you another asset class, access to it, that, oh, by the way, along with stocks, is the only asset class that has outpaced inflation over time, historically speaking. You heard the bell in the background there, and that means it's time for our final thoughts, Janet. Scott, I'm going to do a giveaway, and nobody else even knows what I'm going to do, Uh-oh. so the production team is probably in a panic right now, but it's okay. <laughs> It'll be all right. So here's the deal. I have really enjoyed this shift in our format to hmm. questions but we're getting more of them through text and email than we are through audio that we, we would then have the ability to share on the air. So here's what I'm going to do. To the first five people who call us and leave a voicemail, the number is 501-381-5228. For the per- first five people who call us and leave us a voicemail with their question, we're going to send you a copy of Your Retirement Should Be More. It's a book that John and I wrote not too terribly long ago. That will help you understand a whole lot more about retirement. And uh, we just want to hear your voice. So call us and give us that information and leave us a way to contact you so we can figure out how to get a book to you. And that's my final thought. These questions are great that we get every week. They are just kind of a pinhole, a microcosm of an overall plan uh, that can be done and needs to be done for you to be on the path to true financial independence. So my Final thought is get started. Um, If you're watching on our video, seven steps to financial independence is available to you. To get it, to get this free download, just text the word STEPS to that same number that Janet just gave out, 501-381-5228. Or you can get them by visiting getreadyforthefuture.com forward slash steps. Or you can email us show at getreadyforthefuture.com. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. Great questions about 401ks, contributions, order of contributions. Uh, We talked about real estate a little bit. We talked about life insurance. Hope you got something out of today's show. Get us those questions for next week, and we'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. 
And if you want to help us get the word out on building towards financial independence, leave us a rating and review. The GenWealth Financial Team is available to you 24-7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial.